There are sermon notes in the bulletin, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We have been studying this chapter, and as the slide is going to come up here in a second, we've got a, little, a few more slides this morning. We have been looking at this text of Scripture that deals with liberty. And we have said that chapters 8, 9, and 10 all deal with liberty. Are we going to get our slides up? Chapters 8, 9, and 10 all deal with liberty. That this, this is a very deep and incredibly deep subject. Okay, I really need these slides. <laughs> is Brian here? Oh, there we go. Good. Thank you. All right. So we're talking about principles of liberty. And when you see it goes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. It's been something that's blown me away that this is such a deep doctrine. The concept of Christian liberty. Because you would study the Bible and you say, well, I want to study about salvation. Or I want to study about the doctrine of the deity of of Jesus Christ or something, I don't know how many would come to me and say, listen, I really want to get deeper into the doctrine of liberty. But we're finding how broad a subject this is. And so as we went into chapter 8, chapter 9 took us into a different direction. And it took us into this subject matter of dealing with the sacrifice that we have to have. Now, in reaching people, not just in impacting other believers, which chapter 8 did. So as we come, though, to chapter 9, verse 24, you look at verse 24, and it says this. We just read it, and I'll read it again. It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And we're going to focus on this one passage today, but it deals with the entire section as it deals with a sports metaphor. And it uses this concept of running. And so I'm just touching upon it here. We're going to go more into this. So I wanted to ask you this question. How are you running in life? And I thought about doing a whole sermon just on or the rat race. Because there's so many dynamics. You're going to see there's so many scriptures that deal with running as a metaphor for the Christian life. There's metaphors like we walk with our life, um, different ways that we can describe the Christian life. But the idea of running is the idea like you're going places, you're doing things, and you're doing it with an intensity. But I like the fact that, you know, sometimes life is called a rat race. And why is it called a rat race? Because the... (laughs) You can even look this up on Wikipedia. They call it a rat race because they say... Human life compares to a bunch of rats that are put in a maze and are going to find their cheese. And I thought, wow, how, you know, true that is, life seems like we're all running for our cheese. I think there's even a famous book, Who Moved My Cheese? That's an interesting um, business book. But the idea is you run, and as the rats go for their cheese, they bite and devour sometimes one another. They push one another out of the way. It gets really ugly. And then when they get their cheese, guess what? you got to go find more cheese. And that, sometimes that's exactly how you feel in life, right? And then the idea of winning and losing. So here's a running event. And the idea that really when you talk about a race, and that's the point of our text, a race is one 
are lost. One are lost. And so as we go into this text, keep these running metaphors in in the back of your mind. So all of this, though, deals with liberty. And the idea here is you look over in the chapter 8, and he says in down, where is it, verse is at 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And if you haven't been with us, the concept of liberty, and I put Lady Liberty there finally a couple weeks ago when we were in this text prior to John Fallahy coming in. Just as a side note, it's up on the podcast. If you miss John Fallahy, listen to those messages. What a blessing it was to have him here. But the idea here of liberty is one of not being enslaved, enslaved to sin and enslaved to a system. The gospel of Jesus Christ releases us so that we are not slaves to a system of how much we have to do to earn our salvation. And it's so critical that you understand this, that sin has you enslaved. Sin controls you. And sin wants to do bad things with your life. And, and when you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are enslaved. Romans chapter 6. So without us turning there, we understand this reality that sin enslaves. But when we come to faith in Jesus, when we believe that we owe God for every sin, and we owe him not with money, we don't owe him with church attendance, we don't owe him with so many good works that we can do because we can't do anything. The only thing that we are going to be able to do is give him our life because the wages of sin is death. This is why people go to hell. Because on judgment day, God says, have you sinned? You're declared guilty. You know, you would say, yes, I have sinned. You're declared guilty. What do you owe? You owe your life. And you only have one. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus Christ comes to earth realizing that no man could pay that penalty and go on into heaven. When Jesus dies, he pays the penalty for that sin. He pays it in full. He's no longer still on a cross. He's no longer still suffering. He has broken the system where man thinks they have to do things to earn salvation. He has said, I've paid it all, in essence. And Jesus did do that. And when we believe that, there becomes a settled reality in us that, oh my goodness, I am free. I'm born again. There's been a transformation that's taken place. And I am no longer under this chain are in these chains where it's holding me saying, if you don't do this, if you don't do so many good works today, if you don't do so many um, wonderful things throughout your lifetime, you're not getting in. So that when we get to heaven, it's not going to be a a scale like balancing back and forth. Well, you did 25 good things, but you did 29 bad. You're not getting in. You, You understand this liberty is a liberty from a system of works we place our faith in Jesus Christ who arose from the dead. And when we receive it, we are born again and we're free. No longer under this bondage. And a believer just rests in it. It's interesting. All these concepts, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, talk about the rest that we have for this liberty. Why is this so critical? Because when we have this liberty, and there's again my push for our Tuesday night Bible study. Men, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, my house. We, we have been studying a passage in the book of Galatians chapter 5 it says this for you were called to freedom brethren unless it's called to liberty 
Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're to serve one another. We're not to bite and devour one another. That, that's the rat race. That's what the world does. They destroy one another along the way. They abuse one another. They take advantage of people. But God says, because now you've got your liberty, don't just sit back and say, you know what? I'm saved. I don't have to do anything. I don't care about other people. I don't care what other people are doing, going through and what other people think and how my life's going to impact other people. No, through your liberty, serve one another. And the reason it's so important is because we all have treasures, we all have time, and we all have talents. We, the time, the talent, the treasures. And God wants each one of you to think about what you are doing with this. Why? Because he wants your treasure to be stored up in heaven so it's there for you. God is not a stingy little miser looking to say, how much gold can I pull from you today? How many times does the pastor have to pass the offering plate so that the coffers of the church can get bigger and bigger and bigger? He doesn't want it just so that, that, that we can see how much we can get from you. God tells us through Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves don't break and steal. It's there for you. I'm just trying to get you guys to have the foresight to understand in the rat race of life as people are killing themselves, working for the accumulation of stuff, nobody takes it with them. So we want you to understand, use your time, your talent, your sacrifice. God isn't saying, well, you know, I'm just, I'm going to honor the people who gave a million dollars. It's the person that sacrifices their time, their talent for him. And how he's going to measure that out, I don't know. But he will do it. Don't be foolish. Think ahead. Because every one of us have to understand there's this thing called the believer's judgment. And I can see this. It says the judgment seat of Christ. I didn't want to put a picture there of Jesus because I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know that this is something that like passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 discuss. And people, you are going to be rewarded for how you live your life. Now, as we go through this text, it's critical that you understand because we're all going to face Jesus. And when we get there, the motivation we have seen, as Paul tells us in verses 16 and 18, is he wants heavenly reward. And the reward is honors and accumulation for himself, and he wants people there. And that's going to be part of his reward. And so here's, if you can see it real well, which way will you choose? What way are you going to choose? Because when you have freedom, nobody came and said yesterday, hey, you know, get out of your house and, you know, go to the Lord pastor or anything like that. Nobody banged on your door and nobody said, you know, this morning you have come to church and we're going to all check, you know, how much is your offering going to be? Is it going to be, you know, a level that's acceptable? I mean, we don't do that. We have freedom you have freedom in Christ. If you're truly born again, you're truly someone that's changed inside, you're going to heaven. But what you do with your time, talents, and treasures is up to you. And I got this quote, Charles Ryrie. Some of you guys have a Ryrie study Bible. This is him right here. And he's got a basic theology. Um, he had a really interesting quote, and I thought I would read it to you this morning. He said this. And he was speaking of the believer's judgment. He said the outcome of the believer's judgment will be either reward or deprivation of reward. So right now, you know whether you're a believer or not. 
Do you really know if you're a believer? When you stand before God, and you will, because the Bible's telling us this is a surety. As sure as we're all sitting in this room, every one of you are going to stand before God. If you're a believer, not whether you're going to get into heaven or not, but whether you're going to be rewarded or not. Salvation, Ryrie goes on to say, is not in question. For those deprived of reward shall be saved, yet as through fire, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the believer's judgment. You just get in. He says, yet apparently every believer will have done some things that God can praise. Nevertheless, the deprivation is real and may involve forfeiture and shame. Certainly it means forfeiting rewards that otherwise might have been received. The Greek word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, carries the idea of suffering in the sense of physical or mental Where's Physical or mental suffering. It is the basic idea of loss in the sense of forfeiture of a reward that could have been received. So you will not suffer, but you're going to be disappointed. John, the disciple, clearly taught that rewards may be lost because of unfaithfulness. So not only does Paul talk about it, but John talks about it. So he taught that rewards may be lost because of unfaithfulness during one's lifetime. That's 2 John verse 8. 2 John verse 8. His concern was that his readers would receive a full reward, that is, receive all that could be theirs through continued faithfulness. Do you understand? My pushing you is so that you make a choice on your own, and I don't want to be manipulative as a pastor, but I want you to make choices so that you do not be ashamed. You're not ashamed on that day. I'm just trying to get you guys to be aware. You're not coming this morning, if you're visiting our church, for a nice fluffy surface about how to make life all the more easier. This could be a lot of inconvenience for you. We'll talk about that in a second. So he goes on to say, he goes, his concern was that readers would receive a full reward, that is, receive all that could be theirs through continued faithfulness. The same idea of loss is part of Paul's analogy of the judgment seat with running a race in the passage we're studying here. His, con- his concern was that he is not disapproved, that is, do nothing that would make him unworthy to receive rewards. We're going to get to the end of the text where Paul says, I don't want to be unapproved. Perhaps even more vividly, John wrote about the possibility of a believer being ashamed at Christ's coming. 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28 that says, that has the passive voice coupled with the expression for him shows that a believer's withdraws in shame. It suggests a shrinking back from Christ. Perhaps from a sense of guilt with the believer producing the action rather than Christ putting the believer to shame. That You understand? I love verb tenses, and I'm not going to get into that, but the text makes it clear. God's not going to say, shame on you. What's going to happen is you're going to realize, oh my goodness, I'm shamed. That's a world of difference. Do you understand? I love how verb tenses work. Ryrie goes on to quote a man named Hoyt that gives this illustration. And I thought this was so important that I put this up here. And he, he, whoops, he compares the believer's judgment to graduation. It's probably one of the best illustrations I've ever read on this. He goes, the judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measurement of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. 
The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have, been gradu- they have graduated, and they are grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. So you understand what I'm saying? To undo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential, though. So what, we've all been to graduation ceremonies. I believe most of us have. So th- think of the judgment seat. Think of the sea of thousands of people, tongues, so many tongues. People are going to be there. And like you look in this graduation, there are some people that... I, didn't want to put anyone's picture. The, the adult, he says, duh, uh, I, can ha- I can have it now, his diploma. There are people we all know that go through school and they do the bare minimum. The teachers bend over backwards. They do whatever they can to get that person a diploma. I've seen it. I've seen it in my 40 years, right? We all know someone that, that they just get through. That's 1 Corinthians 3, as through fire. They just get through. But here's a picture off the internet, magna cum laude, means with great praise. For those of you who have gone through graduation, and you've got magna cum laude or summa cum laude, and there's been other rewards and accolades, it's a great time. So you understand that this is the idea that, what, that what's before us. And, and our theology is to grasp this and to understand, I much like being here than being there. And I just want you to think. And, and here's the neat thing, because when we look at school, sometimes it's just academics, right? It's just like, oh, are the smartest people going to get the magna cum laude? Well, in serving Christ, it's the person that says, you know what? I've just given my time all the time for Awana. I'm the one that just goes and carries out flyers. I'm the one that just, I may not be the most intellectual, and I can't parse every verb, and I can't give you the, you know, the complete breakdown of justification, But I can get out and I can do things for God. And God is going to see. And God knows that the woman who gave the little mite was one who sacrificed. And you say, I might not have all the greatest wealth. But God knows that you sacrifice for him. That's why this honoring is going to be so incredible. And there are people that you're going to be blown away by. There's going to be people that, you know... People that you'd say, man, this person never did any. I never saw this person on their knees. But my goodness, year after year, instead of watching soap operas, they were praying and fighting for God and for the church and for people's souls. I'm just trying to get you to understand what's at stake. All right, so here's our recap. Paul, if you have your sermon notes, and we're wrapping up the sermon notes, the fill in the blanks today, but we're in this section, and you look down at verse 19. Because the, the, the chapter broke down to where Paul gave an illustration of his own life because he gave up his liberty, his desire to be paid, all with the idea to impact people. Because he, he felt that people would look at a pastor and say, oh, or, or, an event, or an apostle and say, oh, the only reason he's an apostle is because he's trying to get wealthy. Paul says, no, fine, I won't take any pay. I'm, I don't want any malignment of my position to be... To be a false accusation. So I won't take a pay. Well, my goodness, he had to work double shifts, work as a pastor and then work getting paid. Um, We think being a tent maker. So look at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, this is all of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're free from all men. You don't have to do anything for anybody. All right? I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Win more people. I'm recognizing what's at stake. And 
And it's the, the idea of getting them into heaven. This is the most important thing. And it deals also with the idea of the joy he has. There's a text I want you to jot down. I won't have you read um, right now. I want you to have to turn there. But it says in 2 Corinthians chapter um, 1, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, For we write nothing else to you, what you read and understand. And I hope that you understand until the end, just as you did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as also, you, as also ours in the day of Lord Jesus. And what he's saying is, I want to impact you so that on Judgment Day, I'm proud. Listen to me. On Judgment Day, when I see you guys, and I'll be there, I will have joy as a pastor. However you influenced, however you impacted, somehow, way, there's going to be a joy. It's a pride. Now, often in the Bible, you can take passages and pride is bad. But there is godly pride. And the pride is like, my goodness, I really made a good choice. I really impacted people. I really did something good. So I want you to have that understanding. When Paul talks about, I want to win people and I want to influence people, there is a sense of wanting to have that joy. And so don't refrain and say, oh, I didn't influence anybody, you know, or I can't do anything, blah, 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 you know, so fake humble. The idea is Paul recognizes that he knew whether he did good or not, whether he recognized whether he impacted people. So verse 20, he, go, he begins, he says, To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. And he goes through these four categories. And I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. But the idea is, is that, the idea is, is that no matter what group he was in, he was using wisdom to try to influence those people. He wasn't trying to compromise. And so this is what we said. We said that Paul was saying in these verses, I do everything sacrificially for other people so that I can benefit from it. And that's already filled in. So when you come down to verse 23, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Now, not that he can earn his salvation, but to get the gospel out, to spread it, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What do you mean a fellow partaker? Are you dying on the cross? No, I want to be rewarded for it. This is why Paul is putting forth this concept of spiritual eternal rewards and wanting to be someone that's a part of the winning team. And he's trying to tell us this is his methodology. This is the way he lives his life. So what do we have here? The goal here is that a person hears the gospel and then believes. So to the Jew... I wouldn't go to like a, a Jewish person and tell them, like I ran across a Jewish person this week. I wouldn't tell them, you know, the Jews killed Christ. That was like the first thing out of my mouth. No, I wouldn't say that. I might bring up the Old Testament. I'd use wisdom in how I bring them up. I, I talk to them. If I was talking to somebody that was very much into, into um, maybe evolution, I might not hit them the first thing with evolution. I want to hit them with the Gospels. I don't want to just offend somebody right off the bat. I want to get them to listen to me about the Gospel because I want people to believe. And the methodology out of this text, we said, is not compromise because verses 19 to 23 are most famous text in Christian ecclesiology, how a church is set up today, 
a lot of churches have decided, oh my, this passage is teaching that we don't bring Bibles to church. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about making people feel uncomfortable. We're going to change our entire service. That, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the, those under, not, uh, under the law, I became was under the law. So there's been people who have said, pastors and church groups that have said, we're going to take this and we're going to basically compromise. That is not what this text is teaching. What this text is teaching is don't be offensive. Don't try to offend people so that they will listen. Okay? So here's where we're at. Today's study, verse 24, as we come to this, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? And I'll tell you, this is fascinating because he's using imagery from, from what we believe were their Olympic games. The technical expression, they, they, they lived on an isthmus, so they were called the Isthmian Games. Okay? We know these as the forerunners of the Olympics. And I put up this picture with all these sports because there's a word that doesn't come out in English that I was like blown away and I couldn't find it in other texts. And maybe somebody has a, a, a Bible version that has it. But it literally says in Greek, do you not know that those who run in a stadium all run? I don't know why they didn't put the word stadium in there. And it, the idea of the stadium being in a place where all the games are being held. So here's what it is. He says, do you not know? Okay. And you see this two plus two equals four. Look at that expression. Do you not know? As we've been studying the book of first Corinthians, I said it gets used numerous times. I can't remember the number now, like seven, eight, nine, ten times. It's, a, it's the idea here is that do you not know athletes compete? It's like it's self-evident. Don't you know this is what athletes do? They run. And, and, and when they run, those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. The idea here, let me get my next slide so I know where I'm going, is, okay, is that they run, that Christians run. And, and, and this is a description of our life. And it, like I said earlier, throughout the scriptures, the idea of us running is something that God uses to picture our life. And I hope that as you are made aware of that, if you have never thought about it, you'll be aware that this is a methodology, a, a, a metaphor that God uses over and over, with, whether it's using the explicit word run or imagery of it. And so here's a famous passage. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and stretching, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to, toward, the up, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The price in that passage is Christ's likeness and all its benefits. So this imagery we can see in one passage is of the intensity, the intensity that we use. God uses the picture of a runner. And any of you who have known people who have been in athletics, there's an agony. And it's interesting that word agony is going to come up. But the idea of you push yourself, you push yourself, and you, you'll watch the Olympics, and you'll watch a track event, and someone will come up and say, if they've won the race, and they, they, they're getting the accolades, and they'll say, well, how did you do it? And I'll just talk about, it. I just pushed myself. I just, I just really put a lot of intensity into this. And, and, and I went beyond what I, was, I, 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 I thought I could do. And to get there, I sacrificed a lot. And it was interesting this week. 
we were talking at men's study and Ken Brown brought up an illustration I had forgotten it. And, and how this all ties in is when you start to see yourself in this life in a run and, and using the pictures of athletic metaphors is there's a lot that you have to sacrifice to get, to give up, to be a winner. And the idea that Ken brought up was tied into this is that they were asking Ray Comfort, and if you don't know who Ray Comfort is, Ray Comfort is an evangelist who spends hours out open-air preaching. He goes door-to-door, does all kinds of things to reach people. And they were asking him about his day and, and, and what he likes to do and, and, you know, and why he does what he does. And he goes, well, first of all, you know, let me just tell you, and I'm paraphrasing this a little bit. Ken, Ken knows this. So we talked about it before service. Basically, Ray Comfort said, you know, I don't want to always be out here on Saturdays or Fridays or whatever doing open door. I don't always want to be there, in essence, like on Wednesdays doing Awana. I don't feel like doing this, but I'm compelled to do it. I've got to do it to be a winner. There's a sense of intensity, people, that you've got to recognize that, you know, the person that wins the race is often the person that makes the sacrifices long before the race. You're not going to get to Judgment Day and say, now it's time for me to witness the people. It's going to be too late. Everyone that's going to be there is already a believer. The time was like yesterday when it said, hey, go door to door, and you all showed up. Or when you got a one, or you got this, or you got that, and you show up. Or when it's time to sign up for food, you show up. I want you to understand, Christians run. And look at this passage, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we do. We focus on Christ. We run an endurance race. Some of you, maybe you've never run, but I know that Courtney's run, and I know Annette's been running long distances. When you, you, know, you run an endurance race, there is many times you want to quit. And, and, and what God wants you to do is to focus on the end, to focus on Jesus. And I've used this illustration. I use it again. My pastor in Columbus, Ohio, 30 years ago about gave this illustration where he you can do this with little kids you say how do i in in the snow i want to make my path straight and if you said you know i I just want to go and make a a straight path if you looked at your feet it's it's really hard to keep yourself straight but if you would point and look at something in the distance like a tree in the distance and you just walk towards that tree and then you stop and you look about and you look at your tracks in the snow it's often very straight the idea we fix our eyes on Jesus. There's many times you feel defeated, you feel beat up. Your goal here is to get to the end. Focus on Jesus and keep running, all right? And there's a reward for how you, how you, you run. Look at, look at verse 24. Do you not know those who run in a race? All run, everyone runs, but only one receives the prize. He, he's using the idea of victory, of a prize, a celebration. And we've said that the idea of running here, the idea of running is the idea of running for victory. And 
Sometimes the metaphor breaks down because I wanted to read that Ryrie comment earlier because you're, you know, if you lose as a believer, you're losing reward. It's not like you're kicked out where you're not going to be in heaven. So it's, I have to live with that tension here. The idea is, though, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he receive a reward. Reward theology is one of the most important doctrines that you can study in Scripture. God keeps putting this before you so that you make the choices. Be someone that's smart. Understand there is reward for how you live your life. All right? And look, win the prize. Okay? Look, the idea is... When, verse 24, do not know that only those who run in a, do not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Only one gets it. And when you get the prize, what, this is a Russian from uh, Sochi Olympics. Um, he's just, he's elated. And here's one you can all relate to. This is my daughter. My daughter was in gymnastics in 2011. And she was, this is the, <laughs> the only tournament she ever won. And this was an all-around competition. And Ellie won, I think, the floor, the vault, and everything else. And then she got the whole thing. And just one of the greatest joys of her life. Don't you think, you see the smile on her face? What kind of smile is going to be there for you? I want you all to be on the podium. I mean, whether it's that Russian, whether it's Ellie, whatever, it's you. And, and you don't have to look at your life and say, well, I'm not the fastest, I'm the swiftest, I'm the strongest. Listen. God knows your talents, your abilities. Just use them. That's all we're asking. And God takes care of the rest and magnifies it. You look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So we know that there, there's, only gonna be like, there's only like one winner. So he, then he gives a command. And in this whole section, there's only one command. Circle it. Verse 24, okay, is run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way. Now, when we talk about winning and we talk about the prize, the motivation is not mega millions. It's not earthly related. Because, you know, you guys could be saying, look, you know, I've come to Awana. I've witnessed to my neighbor. I've witnessed to my kids. I've witnessed to these people. I've shared. I've worked. I've sacrificed. And I don't see all this stuff now. I don't see all the great accolades. Well, you're not home yet. You're not on the, it's not time for you to get on the victory platform yet. So you just have to trust that this is heavenly related. This is all heavenly related. That's when the accolades come. And, and you, you know, you just have to keep pushing. So the command comes, the command comes to be able to just focus on that. Here's Warren Wiersbe. Many of you know Warren Wiersbe. I think his family was in this area. He was on um, the radio Bible program. He has his B books. I, I use his B commentaries. I really like him. And Wiersbe said this. He said, he said um, the Christian does not run the race in order to get to heaven. He's in the race because he has been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But only Greek citizens were allowed to participate in these Olympic games and they had to obey the rules in both their training and in their performing and any contestant found breaking the training rules was automatically disqualified automatically disqualified from the rewards not from the participation if you're a believer you're in but i want you to get the rewards so here comes the command run in such a way 
That, it, it's the only command in the text. Verse 24, the second half. Run in such a way that you may win so that you may get the victory. Run in such a way. For those of you who know Greek, the word in such a way is hotos. For God hotos the world. Run it. For God, in such a way, love the world. That's, that's a bonus extra. Someone can ask me about that later. But the idea, is, the idea is you run in such a way. What do you do in such a way? You run in, in the sense that, okay, if I am going to run, I don't just show up. You can ask Courtney, you can ask Annette. Could you just show it up to your, triat- your, your marathons and just say, today's the day I'm going to run for the first time? Oh, my goodness, No you got to wake up. you got to sometimes say, I'm, I'm going to go out and run. I don't feel like running. Or, you know, I'm going to watch my diet, and I'm going to sacrifice certain things. And I'm going to push myself when I want to quit. And I can't tell you all the times when I've been running. And I get out there, and I'm going to run just two miles. And I've run 50 feet, and I want to quit. And, and I can't tell you. Like, I used that Ray Comfort illustration. How many times Ray said, I don't want to go out. I don't want to do that. I'd much rather be watching TV. I'd much rather be staying home. Of course you do. But run in such a way. This is live your life in such a way. It's a present active imperative. It's a command. It's present. It's ongoing. This is what God wants you to do over and over and over and over and over. I think the next slide I got is from my son. And the reason I put my son up here is because my, my son plays part of a soccer club and I use this, they have this on their website because they win a lot of trophies. And it's impacted my son, and he's got a lot of trophies. You come to my house, Josh has his trophy, trophies in his house. And Josh is working in the nursery right now. You can tell him, ask him later. But he has these trophies, and they're all over the place. And the, the, the idea is this from his soccer website club's website is you know we win a lot of trophies the essence we win a lot of trophies in practice we go to tournaments to get them handed out my see the point is is like when you look i got it okay yeah whoops there's this is 2011 this has been playing with the chicago fire look at that nice young man there okay Amber, I had one with you, and I didn't put you in it, but that's okay. And there's little Johnny. You know what? Now, both of these kids, at least both of them are taller than me. I don't know. <laughs> okay? But this was down in Indianapolis, and that was a futsal tournament. I, I took all these other pushes. This, this is, last, this is um, um, last year, his high school team. Josh played on it, and for the, like only the fourth time in their 80 years, they won the sectional championships, and he was so happy and so elated. And I put this not just... Not, not to honor Josh, and then this year he was state champ, okay, is I know the sacrifice it takes. And how many times Becky and I have to sometimes even pull Josh, you got to go to practice, you got to go to practice, you got to go practice, and you don't want to go to practice, but then he goes to practice, and you push it. You don't just roll out of bed and you're the state champ. You're, you're not going to just all easily be getting all these accolades from God unless you make sacrifices, Unless you run in such a way. And God's here giving this instruction. Run that you can win. Run that you win. The winning methodology, go back to verse 19. Remember, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. 
The slave idea is, is that I've, I'm putting other people's needs ahead of mine. I'm thinking of other people. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I may not want to go out to coffee with somebody, but I'll go out to coffee with somebody. I don't want to go and talk to my neighbor, but I'll go talk to my neighbor. I, won't, I don't want to do blah, blah. You fill in the blank. But I'll do it. I'll enslave myself. I think it's critical that you understand this is not about becoming some like kind of monk or anything like that or getting like oh how many hours you know how many hours of are you praying or something like that the methodology here is for you to recognize how you're reaching out to people how you're involving yourselves with people how you're coming across the people so think that the way you're going to run is run in such a way because you want to win people to heaven i'm just letting you know from the extent what everything i can tell there will be some sadness where we look, go to heaven and we say, so-and-so's not here, so-and-so's not there. And, and there's a reality that, that on Judgment Day, that passage from 2 Corinthians, that you're going to have a joy when you say, oh my goodness, so-and-so is here. So-and-so is there. You know, I can tell you, like, many years ago, I lived with, with a roommate. His name was, uh, just give his first name, it was John. This was after I became a believer. And I would get up, and we would pray, and we would study the Bible. And John was a kid that grew up in church. And he just, this never became that, in the sense that you never saw the Bible impact his life. You never saw John have any concern for, for believers, or to, to get anyone saved. And really, serving for him was like pulling teeth. And I used to say, John, John, you know... This is what you got to do. And so we got up and we prayed and we went through a couple of mornings, a couple of months of getting up and praying and reading through the scriptures. And then eventually he just didn't want to do it and he stopped. And then I moved off to California and he moved on. And I didn't hear from him for about 15 years. And one day, out of the blue, I get this phone call and he goes, and he goes Mike, I go, who is this? He goes, it's John. And I said, John, what's up? And he basically goes, Mike, I got to tell you. He says, he goes, I got saved. And I had incredible joy. And I said, he goes, all those years that you were telling me and I was fighting against you and I was, I was you know, pulling teeth and just always critical and thinking that you were like legalistic. wasn't legalistic. And, and, and things, he goes, I wasn't saved. And I didn't have a heart for the loss. He goes, my life has been transformed. He was fascinated. This guy was an engineer. He had developed some product and he became an overnight millionaire. And, and he goes, Mike, God has blessed me, and I'm using all this money for the church now. And my joy was just absolutely overwhelmed. And when you hear people come to faith, it's not like, I, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I did this. It was just like incredible joy. Like, I had impacted this person. I, I, I do feel it. I do feel happy that, about that. But now you're happy for that person too, and there's not like, oh, I'm the one that got him saved. I know it's all Christ, and Christ is the one that worked, and then Christ is the one that opened the eyes. But if you don't put the effort, then you don't get to partake. And that's what I want you to understand, the winning methodology. The goal is that a person hears the gospel and then believes. You want them to listen. You want them, you know, so I didn't offend John into the sense where he'd stop listening. So you want people to believe. I got another quote from Warren Wiersbe. And he says this. Paul said, Wiersbe said this. Paul had one great goal in life. To glorify the Lord by winning the lost and building up the saints. 
to reach his goal, he was willing to pay any price. He was willing to even give up his personal rights. He sacrificed immediate gains for eternal rewards, immediate pleasures for eternal joys. And right now, you can make a choice. I want to be like Paul. I'll be half in and half out. And you're really not in as much. You're not going to be as happy as you can be all in. John MacArthur, who, you know, grace to you. He was the president of my seminary. You listen to him on the radio. He goes on and he says this. Many believers start the Christian life with enthusiasm and devotion. They train carefully for a while, but soon tire of the effort and begin to break training. Before long, they are disqualified from being effective witnesses. They do not have what it takes because they are unwilling to pay the price. The flesh, the world, and everyday affairs, personal interests, and often simple laziness hinder spiritual growth and preparation for service. Even good things can interfere with the best. Fulfillment of freedoms can interfere with fulfillment of love. Following our own ways can keep others from knowing the way. Souls are won by those who are prepared to be used when the Spirit chooses to use them. So Paul gave an instruction, run, run, live your life in such a way that you may move forward toward a goal and win. Now because you are Christian, I'm saying this now, you are guaranteed to get over the finish line. But Paul wants you to put forth the effort of a winner. Listen, do it with intent, do it with purpose. Anything that you do, as Paul will end this book, will not be in vain. Today I'm challenging you, don't take this passage and turn it into why you should be a hermit and and study and not involve yourself with people. The context is how Paul used giving up his rights to reach people. That's the passion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what Paul has given us. And now help us as we reflect and analyze and think about our own life, about how we live. God, I pray that those who are believers understand the incredible offer that's been given to have eternity be the place where all their great wealth is stored. Their effort is put into heaven. Help them, God, to see this. Help me to see it. Help me to push all the more. And for anyone who came today and hasn't come to faith yet, use this passage to stir in them as they think about the fact of how Jesus gave up his rights and he died so that they could have salvation. May they turn to Jesus and believe. In Christ's name. Amen.